Hello and welcome to the Healing of Emotional Wounds podcast series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Today we're going to look at healing and the subtle body, especially with regards to the relationship between client and therapist. First, some announcements. Those of you who have been following this series with interest could help the series by promoting it to other therapists or friends interested in the healing endeavour. Part of the object of this series is not only to extend its audience, but also to promote the subsequent series, which is going to be much longer. The Healing of Emotional Wounds series will have to end at some period, probably in mid to late January of 2019. And then it will be followed by another much longer series, which is an examination of major visionaries from an interdisciplinary perspective across the ages. We look at great mystics, we look at great thinkers in philosophy, we explore the rise of science, examine great political theorists, people who have changed the way we think and behave, our belief system, and have changed the paradigms that govern us. This will be an extensive series of visionaries that are examined, with a focus on the crises of the 21st century. So it's not just a look at the great visionaries of antiquity for the purposes of curiosity, and scholarly interest, although that is important and of great interest. It's a focus on the crisis of our own times and an attempt to look at the wisdom of the ages and see what we can garner from it to help us in the contemporary situation. We'll be focusing on a multi-dimensional crisis that is developing in the 21st century, which will cover the economic and political crisis of our time, the ecological crisis, the military crisis, and the spiritual vacuum of the 21st century. We shall be examining if the human species is headed for extinction, or, as I argue, major species trauma, that is a trauma to our own species. We'll be putting these together from an interdisciplinary perspective to gain greater understanding of the contemporary situation. Let us now pass to the subject of this specific podcast, which is Healing in the Subtle Body. The influence of the Orient upon the West took a new level in the early 19th century, when translations became available of Indian sacred literature, such as the Rig Vedas. We can observe this in Schopenhauer, for example, a German philosopher, who formulated a fatalistic philosophy in his 1818 work The World as Will and Representation, in which human desiring, willing and craving cause suffering or pain. A temporary way to escape this is through aesthetic contemplation, because it stops one perceiving the world as mere presentation. Instead, one no longer perceives the world as an object of perception from which one is separated. Rather, one becomes one or united with that perception. One engages in a participation mystique instead of actually being separated from it. Art, and above all music, is the way to do this. Schopenhauer was so impressed by Hindu philosophy, which he began to read from around 1814, that he called it the production of the highest human wisdom. 
He achieved recognition in philosophical circles in the last decade of his life, the 1850s, and had a decisive influence upon Wagner and many others in the mid to late 19th century. By the 1920s, we have examples of ancient Chinese spiritual literature being translated to the West. For example, Richard Wilhelm translated The Secret of the Golden Flower, for which Jung provided a commentary by way of support. The psyche is embedded in the subtle body, that is, the invisible and foundational aspects of our body, as it shades into energy and spirit. We will pay this particular attention in a later podcast, where we examine the special influence of the secret of the golden flower on esoteric psychotherapy. Jung's pioneering views in the first half of the 20th century on the spiritual and archetypal components of the psyche, and therefore of psychotherapy, became influenced by increasing access to the world's wisdom traditions, esoteric philosophies and mythologies. For instance, alchemy and mysticism. The different role of the therapist-client relationship that Jung proposed was only partially taken up by his own followers, many of whom remained linked to a more psychoanalytic approach, which arose from an academic and medical model of the Western tradition. For example, the 50-minute psychotherapy session resembles the academic lecture of 50 minutes. The hierarchical relationship between doctor and patient can be carried over into various, particularly psychoanalytic, Freudian therapies. However, in the second half of the century, this access to the wisdom of the Orient turned from a stream into a river with the availability of a vast literature on the world's religions and healing traditions, such as shamanism, Eastern philosophies, and a multitude of spiritual practices, a wealth of translations, discoveries of lost traditions, such as Gnosticism, and so forth we became aware of coherent, ancient but still living traditions of healing practices and attitudes, and these impacted upon psychotherapy. These emphasised the predominance of intuitive and feeling states, as opposed to rational and factual ones. The importance of non-ego, trance, altered or transcendent states of consciousness. The lack of a boundary between the healer and the sufferer, and indeed the possibility of temporary fusion states between them. The emphasis on the transformative potential of clients instead of viewing them as sick or limited. The use of common spiritual techniques such as meditation or prayer and the importance of visualisation techniques. Psychotherapists who work with a spiritual dimension have increasingly changed the style of interaction with clients and also reconceptualize their practice as information on the variety of healing techniques used throughout history has become available. We've become aware, for example, that shamanistic techniques, still in use in some parts of the world, are among the most ancient healing and spiritual practices that we know of. For good examples of this, you could read The Death and Resurrection Show, published in 1985 by Rogan Taylor. As practitioners became aware of the long healing traditions, they learnt more from them. Other psychotherapists have, of course, commented on these 
more subtle aspects of the psyche. Francis Vaughan, in The Inward Arc, published in 1986, says, with respect to the therapist, quote, In bringing healing awareness to any relationship, he or she provides the optimum conditions for the natural self-healing of the psyche to unfold. Francis Vaughan describes five levels of healing awareness. Firstly, physical healing awareness, for example, positive mental imagery, can be used to battle against physical disease or impairment. Secondly, emotional healing awareness involves the full, honest, direct exploration and expression of all important emotions, both positive and negative. Clearly, this is a central goal for almost all psychotherapies. Thirdly, mental healing awareness can concentrate on negative thought patterns and attitudes to facilitate the healing process. Fourthly, existential healing awareness, beyond emotions originating in one's personal upbringing, there are often deeper emotions to do with existence itself, such as dread, terror, fear of decay and death, which lie at the most basic and universal level of the human psyche, aware of its impermanence. Naturally, healing awareness addresses this area. And fifthly, spiritual healing awareness. For Francis Vaughan, just as the ultimate source of all types of love is a universal love, so too the source of all healing awareness is the transpersonal self. The healing of the normal egoic self is its transcendence, the ending of the defensive operations of the ego consciousness that split the world into me and other, my consciousness and the rest of the world. Spiritual healing awareness is the highest form of healing. It follows from Vaughan's exposition that the relationship between psychotherapist and client optimally promotes healing awareness at all these levels. To her stimulating framework, I would add that the relationship between psychotherapist and client in the intersubjective field demonstrates the activation of healing energy when the boundaries between two psyches fall away. That is, the intersubjective field, the potential interconnectivity between therapist and client, is in itself a transcendence of the individual egoic self. Schwartz Salent, in the book The Borderline Personality, Vision and Healing, published in 1989, describes identical phenomena with his exploration of the subtle body and interactive field. He suggests that the interactive field can be comprehended only as a third presence, which often takes the form of an unconscious dyad, the imaginal model, which incorporates the alchemical imagery of the conjunctio and its attendant stages. E.C. Whitmont, in The Alchemy of Healing, Psyche and Soma, 1993, describes this peculiar and intense stage of interconnectivity and its critical contribution to the healing process thus. Quote, Purely technically, the most effective treatment is when the healer steps back from his ego needs, expectations and projections, pet theories, medicines and viewpoints. Thus, in an altered state of consciousness, having renounced potentially contaminating ego needs, the healer experiences and observes the patient's state 
from within, as though in a conscious and temporarily empathic merger. John Rowan in the Transpersonal Spirituality in Psychotherapy and Counselling, 1993, has a chapter called Linking and Alchemy. The term linking parallels the concept used here of the intersubjective field. Rowan usefully distinguishes it from the concepts of empathy, identification and countertransference, likening it to Stanislav Grof's terms dual union and identification with other persons, involving, quote, a loosening or melting of the boundaries of the ego, unquote, in the relationship between the client and therapist, explained by Groff in his 1988 book, The Adventure of Self-Discovery. Other therapists whose ideas in this topic are outlined include Alvin Meher's Experiential Listening and, quote, Complete Sharing of the Client's Phenomenal World, unquote, or Van Dersen's, quote, Merging of Two Beings, unquote, or Andrew Samuel's Embodied Countertransference, or Schwartz-Salent and Murray Stein's, quote, Subtle Body, and imaginal reality, unquote. Feels, quote, fourth dimension, the simultaneous union and separation of self and others, or Bion's updating of John Keats' idea of negative capability, or Sterling and Bugenthal's, quote, collapse of separated consciousness into one melded experience, unquote, and many more examples are given. Clearly, then, this idea of merging altered states of fusion between client and therapist is not just a strange alternative idea. Rowan makes it abundantly clear that it has been commented on, observed and explored by many prominent therapists across a range of schools. Indeed, for some therapists, it is not just an occasional experience but something that can be taught in workshops and embodied in training. Full references are given in my book, Healing Intelligence. Let us look briefly at a case study of someone I'll call Julienne, 32 years old, a talented young woman who had been seeing me for about a month. She proved to be very apt in contacting her inner world, experiencing her core emotions intensely and directly. She was very capable of symbolic work. Although these podcasts have characterised a four-part structure to the psychotherapy process, with scanning and healing more typical of the later stages, it should be remembered that there are exceptions, especially when certain clients prove very capable of benefiting from such work at the start of therapy. Typically, they have had a spiritual background in yoga, meditation or something similar. However, I would recommend that even if people do jump in at the beginning of therapy, with these deeper healing experiences that the process of analysis of character still takes place at some point. So the stages, the four stages that we've outlined, may not be sequential, but all should be completed, including the analysis of character. Julian was prone to paralysing anxiety attacks, although many were clearly triggered by her external world. She felt they really arose because of something in her inner world, In most cases, it is my custom to try a small scan first, something light and quick, 
I then watch carefully and ask clients questions concerning the experience immediately after the scan or in the following session, including whether they found such experiences in the scan worthwhile and wish to proceed with such methods. If they found them frightening, it may be better to withdraw from these methods and adopt more usual ones. In some cases, the fantasy material experienced by the client contains clear images of psychological danger. For example, entering a disused mine which collapses on entering, or a boggy terrain which feels unsafe, or impossible weather conditions. Since the fantasy world here operates quite similarly to the dream world, the therapist is alert to the messages or omens in the fantasy images. In my own caseload, I've had a number of clients with a spiritual or creative background who find such techniques useful. Thus, the majority of these who experience them for the first time attest to their benefits and often state, without being asked, that they wish to go further. This may not be the case for other therapists with dissimilar caseloads. Julianne's first light scan went well, although it threw up intense material. Her dreams were also dramatic and full of symbols of potential change. After her next anxiety attack, she told me she was puzzled because she was unclear as to its cause. I asked if she wished to do a scan, and she agreed. We entered quickly into the light trance state, and I felt a countertransference pressure in my sternum. I use the word countertransference, but this is the beginning of a fusion state. I asked her if she felt any sensation or emotion in her body, that is, her imaginal body, and she pointed to her sternum, just between the ribcage. This reassured me the session would be useful, since the synergistic co-experience of identical body centres is a good sign of the healing field being activated. So, as therapist, if you feel something in your, as it were, chakras or body centres, typically in the trunk of the body from the throat downwards, throat, heart, chest, stomach, base of the trunk of the body, then... As therapists, you register these and take notice of them. And if the client reports that they also feel something in, say, their stomach or their heart, and it coincides with exactly what you felt, then you have a very good omen. And you have the potential development of synergistic experiences and fusion experiences in the therapy, which can be quite healing. Let me clarify the body center feeling, for example, in the stomach or the heart that the therapist feels, might be felt first before the client feels it. If the client then reports that she feels a emotion or pressure or strong energy exactly in the same field the therapist, you, have felt already, then that is a very good omen because you haven't communicated that to the client verbally. So we're not dealing with, as it were, imaginative sympathy. When somebody tells you something, they feel fear in their stomach, for example, and then you feel it afterwards. You've felt it before the client has mentioned it. That is the good omen of the possible evocation of a, of a feel state. The calm breathing from the start was very important for this client because of her intense emotionality. After this point, I experienced feelings of tears and sadness, also in my sternum area, 
We were able to participate in the emerging scan, say 10 to 15 minutes in length, in a fruitful dialogue. She proved very capable of contacting her own material, bringing it into awareness and sharing this verbally during the scan. Not everyone does this in the descent or scan experiences. Some people like to remain silent. Other people can communicate their experience and sometimes the therapist can help by saying to the client, well, if you are experiencing any images at this stage, say that you're going into their suffering, you're going into the, what you've just talked about in session at a deeper level, you can ask them to communicate it if they so wish. Some people will communicate and others maybe not. It's not a forced procedure, but of course it's very helpful when people communicate because then you get additional synergistic effects, that is, dual effects, which are more than the sum of their parts between therapist and client. The calm breathing from the start was very important for this client because of her intense emotionality. The more emotional the person is, the more volatile they are, the more you return to breathing techniques before, during and after the scan. Yes, during the scan, you can return to the breath and promote the calming experience, which makes the development of self-awareness more intense because being overtaken by the emotion is not the point. The client will have already become probably overtaken by the emotion earlier in the session. But the important thing is that this material is encountered with one's inner awareness. Inner awareness is not the same thing as normal awareness, because the inner awareness is a mobilisation from deep within the psyche, rather than from one's conscious frontal cortex, ego functions, which are far more analytically based and far more consciously based. It's as if it is the awareness within the right hemisphere as opposed to the left. It's far more akin to meditational awareness. And we'll find out later, one can also encounter it with other areas of the body centres, or chakras, for example. So one can activate the deep psyche and the healing within it. The calm breathing from the start, therefore, is very important. My tone of voice, presence and so on, in this case, was rather flat and matter-of-fact, so as not to exaggerate the potential storm to come in this particular client. And do you feel any emotion, hear any voice or sense anything within this centre you have contacted? I ask. She replies she is unsure, so I mentioned she can ask her inner self, this body centre she has contacted. She does so and says, I feel furious. This was interesting, although it did not coincide with my counter-transferential feeling of sadness. So I asked her simply to stay with this emotion and also focus on the breathing, a source of calmness. A few minutes later, she says, I feel so, so sad and weeps profusely. Again, the coincidence of our emotions across the field is a positive feature. The productive attitude of the therapist is an intense alertness to the transformational possibilities emerging in the client. Over-sympathetic reactions of the therapist may miss the real opportunity for decisive intervention and change. At this stage, simply the right question can unlock potential. Risking her being overwhelmed by tears... I suggest she ask her inner self as to the cause of her sadness. She replies she feels so let down by her family 
and again cries profusely. There follows a period of about five minutes in which she cries but recovers and returns to her focus on the breath. Finally, I ask her inner self, not her ego, about the consequences of her family situation. Her inner self replies, I, that is, her inner self, was neglected and became very anxious, while the rest of me, that is, her ego personality, became tough and apparently independent. Although this experience was very revealing and emotional for Julian, the contents of this scan are typical of many therapy situations in which vulnerable emotions lie beneath the surface of an armoured exterior. Repressed emotion, specifically hysteria, after all, lies at the origin of psychoanalysis. A number of features of the scan are worth noting. It is a container for the experiences of intense repressed emotion. It has a clear structure, agreed in advance. It has escape possibilities. Clients can surface at will during the scan, if they so wish. Very few do, in fact. It promotes an activation of intense awareness, which has healing properties. It has the real possibility of uncovering deep repressed material much faster than the normal pace of psychotherapy. In this particular case, Julianne also proved very adept at switching the centre of her consciousness. To begin with, she had a normal ego self which agreed to be on standby while activating the inner awareness during the scan. Secondly, she switched the centre of her consciousness to the body centre in pain and spoke from it in the first person. I feel this or that directly from that centre, as if she is that centre allowing the complex of emotion, a voice and feelings of its own. That is, she treated it as totally real and could become it. Thirdly, she could switch easily from her ego self to her inner self, back to her ego self and ask questions of her inner self very quickly. Fourthly, she could surrender her ego self temporarily to me and allow me to ask her inner self questions as if I were her ego self. Fifthly, she found no difficulty in sharing her inner self with a trusted other, and if necessary, allowing me to voice any feelings I had, as if they were hers. Such facility in the activation of different parts of the self, suspending the ego, sharing of the field, and switching from one centre to another, yet returning securely to the ego self at the end of the scan is a very healthy sign. Flexibility of and flexibility within the psyche is part of healing intelligence. Such a conclusion may surprise some listeners, but rigidity of the ego is not a healthy sign for deep work. The role of the psychotherapist in the healing process is not therefore one of distance and anonymity. It is one respecting proper clinical boundaries, yes, but there are important times when there is co-evolution and mixing of psyches at a deep level, and healing intelligence is activated, stimulated and shared. It is useful to think of the self, the inner directing centre of the individual, as having shared field properties, not as a personal possession but as a manifestation of the collective unconscious. 
You may think of healing intelligence working in a uniform manner in the psyche. However, this, in my opinion, is not the case. And in our next podcast, we shall examine six ways in which healing intelligence does operate within the psyche.